Now, there's very few things in life that can humble you and bring you to your knees um, in the acknowledgement that you don't see things perfectly, like picking paint off a one-inch swatch and then rolling it onto a wall and realizing, that's not what I thought was going to happen. Has anybody ever done that? I mean, I remember the first house that we owned, it was like a cornucopia of color. It was ridiculous. It was just like an experience of mist-tint paint in every room that you went in. When you're looking at a one-inch swatch, sometimes you don't get a very good picture of what that thing's going to look like when it's rolled on. And the other mistake that we often make is we pick it uh, in the store under the wrong kind of lighting. And so when you are looking at something with the wrong light, uh, the reaction is, oh no, this didn't go where I thought it was going to go. I thought I had a really clear picture of things, and I obviously don't. Um, and, you know, when we say things like when, somebody, when, our, when our spouse comes in or a friend comes in or somebody comes in and looks and goes, wow, interesting paint color. We're like, it looked different in the store. You know, did it really though? It looked different on the swatch. Did it? I don't know. Um, maybe it wasn't different. Maybe it was the way we were seeing it that was, that was different. And I've totally been there. Well, in these few weeks leading up to Easter, we've been looking at the temptations of Christ, and we're doing this because the Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam. You see, the first Adam in the garden, he failed miserably in temptation because, like choosing a a paint swatch in the wrong light, Adam didn't see his temptation very clearly at all. He didn't read the situation clearly. He didn't understand uh, what was underneath the offer. Very, he just didn't see clearly. Whereas Jesus Christ, the second Adam, overcame temptation perfectly because Jesus saw the situation perfectly. He saw the temptation with great clarity. He saw what was underneath the temptation with great clarity, and with perfection. And so because of this, um, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed. The first Adam brought damnation, and Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has given to all of us this great redemption, which is why we gather Sundays to celebrate. And so I'm going to be reading two texts today. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4 and 1 John 2. Uh, Luke 4, the first 13 verses, and then 1 John 2, 15 to 17. And as we read these texts afterwards, we're going to ask three questions, the same questions we asked last week and the same questions we're going to ask the text next week. And the, the questions are this. What was the significance of Christ's temptation? What does Christ's temptation teach us about the source of our temptation? And thirdly, what does God's grace say about our failure in temptation? And what does God's grace offer for us in future temptation? Luke 4 and then 1 John 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered the devil and said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until a more opportune time. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Now, because of the fall of Adam, his failure and temptation, humanity is born into this condition where the most natural thing for us to do is declare independence from God, locate our identity and our sense of meaning apart from God, turn to something else and make that God. And that's the condition that we call sin. And the gospel is, uh, gives us good news that in temptation, Jesus Christ did not give in and exercise independence from God, like the first Adam did. He actually overcame temptation by living in perfect reliance on God, and then by grace and faith, he gives his perfect record of perfect reliance to you. And instead, so therefore, instead of standing before God as one who is guilty, you and I stand before God as one who is innocent. And so, uh, as we look at the two texts that we read, the first text shows how uh, Jesus is tempted to turn from his Father in three distinct ways. And the second text from 1 John shows us how we are tempted to turn from our Heavenly Father in three distinct ways. And so, if you're new to the church or you're new to uh, the scriptures, when we use this word gospel, we're being very specific. We're specifically talking about the perfect life that Jesus lived that we could never live. And the substitutionary death that he died so that he could pay the price for our sin. And we're talking about his divine resurrection, which gives all of us who put our faith in him hope that death is not final. Those things are the gospel. That is the gospel. That is our hope. And it's because of that truth, it's because of what Christ has done, that it has great implications for all of us. And so today's sermon in a statement would be this. The son overcame temptation... Because he trusted the wisdom of his father perfectly. You and I continually struggle and give in to temptation because we trust the wisdom of the father inconsistently. But God's grace covers our failure to trust him completely and God's grace is reforming us to trust his wisdom increasingly. We see Jesus did this perfectly, and he gives that perfect record to us, and then the Apostle John gives us some insight into how we can give in to temptation. So let's kind of unpack this text and see uh, how it is we can be encouraged by God's grace. So first, let's begin with the significance. What is the significance of, of Christ's temptation here? Right? Think about it. The devil is asking the one who spun the universe into existence to bow down and worship him. That's pretty brassy. Why is that even a temptation? The Bible says Jesus was tempted by this. If you are the creator of the universe, the one who spun everything into existence, and you're being asked to bow down and worship, how is that a temptation? Verse 1, the Greek for the devil, we talked about this last week, is diabolos. 
And the diabolus is not a horned person with a tail and a pitchfork and a maniacal laugh. Okay, that's not what it means. In the Greek, it's a slander. It's one who is trying to bring division. So this brassy you know, temptation of, hey, bow down and worship me, is, is, is being driven by the idea of the diabolus, which is, I've got to bring separation. He's trying to bring separation in the Trinity. The word Trinity is tri-unity. It's not a word that's in the Bible. You won't find the word Trinity in the New Testament. The word Trinity is a, is a word that we have come up with to describe the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so the devil is coming and he's trying to bring disunity to the tri-unity. That's what he's trying to do. If I can separate God the Son from God the Father, then I can separate you and me from God the Father forever. That's what he's up to. That's what he's still up to. It's what he's always been up to. He's got one play, and he's been running it since the garden. And it just has a thousand different formations. And so um, the significance of this is that he's trying to bring the separation. Jesus is suffering in the wilderness. So why is it a temptation for Jesus to bow down and worship? Jesus is suffering in the wilderness. And he knows that what lies ahead of him is suffering on the cross. So the temptation here, the offer on the table is escape suffering your heavenly father has called you to a life of suffering jesus but the offer i'm putting on the table is you can escape suffering the wisdom of god is jesus is going to get all of the glory jesus is going to get all of the authority jesus jesus is going to get through his his sacrifice on the cross all the kingdoms of the world It's through his suffering he's going to get the glory. And the temptation on the table is, actually, I can give you all the glory with no suffering. And all you got to do is bow down and worship me. Do you see how, in contrast to your Heavenly Father, I'm a much better offer? Because the Heavenly Father is calling you to suffer, and I'm saying, no, 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 you don't need to suffer. Do you see this? So what happens is... uh, The devil's offer is to relocate his trust. That should be familiar to us because it's what he did in the beginning in the garden. Relocate the trust. Oh, you can't have everything here in the garden? Oh, he said you can't have this? Well, there must be something. He's obviously holding out on you. You understand? I got to get you to relocate the trust. I've got to get you to see the father wrongly. I need you to see God like an ogre. So in the garden, God was an ogre because he was holding out. And now here in the wilderness, God is an ogre because he's making Jesus suffer. Understand? How do we see God? This is, this is what the devil's been up to from the beginning. See him as an ogre. See him as one who is the cause of all of your suffering. Don't see sin and damnation as the, co- the fallen world we live in as the cause of suffering. See him as the cause of all of the suffering. How can I get you to look at this wrongly? How can I get you to sin so that like Adam in the garden who looks at the fruit and somehow comes to the conclusion that it's good with his wife Eve, it's like looking at the paint swatch in the wrong light and then painting the whole room with it and going, I didn't think it was going to go here. Well, it went there. Because the problem was the way that we see, which is what we're going to get to later, why the Apostle John says, uses this phrase, the desire of the eye, which we're going to get to in a minute to explain how, how that connects and why that's important. So, how does Christ's temptation, if that's what it is, if the significance of Christ's temptation was, hey, you can have all the glory with no suffering, how does that illuminate what's at the source of our temptation? What's the connection and how is this, how is this significant? Well, it isn't, a, it isn't a coincidence that Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And how did he get there? The devil didn't take him out to the wilderness. The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. So why would the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness? 
to be tempted and tested. The word, right, the word tested in the Greek, to be brought to the breaking point. Like fishing line, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's 50 pound test and you're, and you're fighting a 50 pound fish. But if you fight a 50 pound fish for 12 hours, the line will probably snap. Because it's been tested for so long, it just gives out. That's what the word testing means. So why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Because the children of God perpetually failed in the wilderness. They perpetually turned away from the Father, relocated their trust, and worshipped all kinds of other things. Life got hard. They're like, I'm done with you. I don't think you're that good. I'm going to go here to satisfy the chronic, constant desire in my soul. I'm, I'm, I'm relocating my trust. I'm relocating my worship. They did that in the, in the, in the desert for generations. The, the Spirit leads Jesus out to be true Israel, Right? And I'm not talking about national Israel. I'm using the term to, to signify, you know, the faithfulness of the children of God. Jesus succeeded where they all failed, where you and I fail. How many of you in this room, the answer is 100%, by the way, but anyway, sorry, spoiler alert. How many of us, 100%, have failed in temptation when the temptation is long, long enough? We snap like cobwebs. Jesus Christ did not snap, and the good news of the gospel is you and I have been united to the one who never snaps. And so he's led in because... When, hard, when times get hard, the children of God historically diversify the trust portfolio. And the devil is up to the same thing today as he was then. Nothing has changed. It just changes. You know, the, the, the idol worship looks different. Now, we don't talk a lot about idol worship in 2018 because it doesn't seem relevant to, like, you know, bow down and worship a construct. But if we broaden out idolatry to just mean you turn from God to this other thing, to locate your trust and sense of identity and meaning and belonging and fulfillment in this thing, uh, we've, we've fallen prey to the temptation and we're into sin. We're seeing something wrong, wrongly here. So the same is true of us um, as it was for the children of Israel. It's because there's this switch in our soul labeled worship, and it was flipped on in the garden, and it's been on ever since. We're all worshiping. We're all worshipers. I know that Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am, and he put the intellect at the hierarchy of, of the human experience. But the Apostle uh, Paul and many theologians throughout time have kind of challenged, uh, you know, prior to Descartes, obviously, and afterwards, the idea that we're just brains on sticks. That you can come in on a Sunday morning and I could just reason with you and give you a good enough teaching to somehow from outside in, you know, change you because you're a brain on a stick. And if you just apply the right things, your life will change. And, you know, we challenge the idea that our catechism class for the youth is just like, well, they're just brains on sticks. So if we just get them to memorize catechisms or learn memory verses or talk about, it's just intellectual. No, it is not. We're appealing to the intellect because we're intellectual creatures. But at the hierarchy, though, of the human experience is not the intellect. It is this heart that has been created for worship, created to bend our knee, created to look to something outside of our experience to satisfy us. And so Jesus is being tempted. Hey, I'll give all of that to you. All you got to do is diversify the trust portfolio because after all, God is an ogre. He can't satisfy you. He won't satisfy you. So you got to turn here. And so Jesus' answer to the devil was, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. It's an answer that actually implies the very thing. You shall worship God and him alone will you serve. You're going to worship something. You're going to serve something. Um, not worshiping and not serving is not on the table. Sometimes that's kind of offensive to us. 
Um, I'll get to that in a second. Jesus was actually quoting Deuteronomy 6. That's what he's quoting. And if you go back and read all of Deuteronomy 6, why did Jesus quote that? Why did Jesus answer with that? Deuteronomy 6 is when the children of Israel were saved by grace out of Egypt. Given by sheer grace this promised land that's very abundant. And then God warns them in Deuteronomy 6. He says, now when you get there, don't worship the abundance. Don't worship the blessing. Don't worship the creation. You shall worship God and him alone shall you serve. You worship the creator. Our worship is to be transcended. Enjoy the blessing. That's why when the Apostle John says in the second text we read, don't love the world, he doesn't mean, you know, let's all be monks and everybody, you know, wear paper bags and live in cardboard boxes and don't like nice things. Don't love the world. You know, here's the, here's the things of the world. Don't love those things. Don't go to the theater. Demons will come out of the screen. Don't, you know, that's not what it means. It's not even close to meaning any of that. To not love the world means to not love, to not love the cosmos in the Greek or the system. Don't love the system of, of worshiping the created. Don't love the system of, of finding your sense of identity and worth and value and meaning and belonging and oh, in some substance, in some thing, in some subject. That's what it means. Don't love that. Don't worship that. Don't exalt some good thing to the ultimate thing and worship it. Right? Don't relegate God to, has it come to that? I guess I'll pray. I'm guilty of that. I know I'm not the only one in the room that's guilty of that, but this is what is done. So that's why Jesus quotes that. When you're given the blessings of God, don't forget God. Right? He's warning them about this worship. So at the core of Christ's temptation is the lie that if he turns to God, he'll enjoy a life of power, glory, and freedom. And at the core of all of our temptation is the lie that if we'll turn from God, that's where we'll find a life of power, glory, and freedom. And so... The natural disposition of the human heart is to wake up every day and live for something, crave something, want something, need something, seek to be defined by something, seek to find joy, fulfillment, meaning in something. That's what I mean by worship. So it hits our ear funny to say even everybody's a worshiper, even people of non-faith. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're in a, in a journey of faith and you'd say, I'm not, I haven't placed my faith in Christ. I have questions about faith. I have questions about Christianity. And maybe you th see yourself or think of yourself as a skeptic or an agnostic, right? Or, or, or even, even describe yourself as an atheist. And if that's you, then it seems odd or offensive that I would be saying to you or suggesting to you that you worship. It's like, well, I'm not a person of faith, so I don't worship. But by, by, by worship, I'm using this word broadly uh, in, the, in, the, in the scriptural sense where it's like you're, you are ultimately giving your life to something. So if... If, God, if there is no God in your worldview or your understanding, then you're making something a small g God in the sense that, you know, there is no divine uh, God that transcends creation. So therefore, my education is the most important thing or my family or my children or, or, or the work that I'm doing in the city, social justice, uh, my business. It doesn't matter what it is, but that thing you wake up and say, life is actually all about this, then that thing is your object of worship. And so that's the, that is the disposition of the human heart. We're born in that condition. And so that's why Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, he opens our eyes so that we, begin, we see clearly. We're saved from the condition of Adam who did not see clearly and therefore fell in temptation and, and made something else God himself because he didn't see clearly. We're saved from that by God's grace 
so that we can begin to see clearly, so that our worship is reoriented. That's why the Apostle John uses this phrase, the desire of the eye, right? We read that. You've got the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life. Your, your translation might say lust. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye is the pride of life. Last week we looked at the desires of the lust of the flesh. This week we're looking at right now this desire, this lust of the eyes. What does that mean? Well, the desire in the Greek is epithemia. The, it is an inordinate focus. It is an inordinate, uh, constant, uh, compelling drive. That's what epithemia is, the desires. It's not just like a casual, I like this. Um, it's like having your mind and your heart on a loop where it's like you, you, cannot, you cannot have rest in your soul and, until you get it, whatever that thing is. Right? It could be a substance. I got to have it. It could be sex. It could be the next shiny thing from the mall, from the dealership. It could be a relationship. It could be a romance. It could be the next accolade of accomplishment in your business or in your education. Whatever it is that you're clamoring after, say, I won't be satisfied, I won't be happy, I won't be complete unless I can have this. That is the epithemia of the eye. That is the inordinate desire of the eye. And the eye in the Greek is ophthalmos. So it's the epithemia of the ophthalmos. And the ophthalmos is not just the physical eye. It is the eye of the mind. It's the, it's the gaze of the mind. So, in it, so the Greek language has affected our English. That's why if I explain something to you, and you're like, well, I don't understand what you mean, and I kind of try a couple different ways, and all of a sudden you understand, the moment that you have a cognitive comprehension of what's going on, you'll probably say, oh, I see what you're saying. So to see is to understand. And so what John is saying is, listen, if you get swept away with the epithemia of the ophthalmos, with this extreme, inordinate, driving chronic desire by the gaze of your mind that's disordered because of sin, if that's happening, then, you're, then, then uh, there's going to be, your mind is going to be on a loop. There's going to be this inordinate desire. And what you think you understand, when you say, oh, I see, oh, I understand, you don't understand. I don't understand. We're like, we're like Adam, or it's like right back to the garden. He's looking at fruit, Eve is looking at the fruit, and what did they say about it? Looks good for food. Notice the language? Looks good. I see it, and it looks good. I see it, and in my understanding of this thing that I'm looking at, like my personal interpretation in the, in the post-truth world that we live in, where, hey, Whatever you, happens to be your view of reality is the truth because it's yours and you hold it. And after all, you're a small G God, so whatever you think must be true, right? This is the universe we live in. So if I give in to the epithemia of the ophthalmos, then what I'm saying is I've got this inordinate thing that's really kind of driving my life. And so when I look at it, I'm like, nope, this seems right to me. And I give in to it. And it's dead wrong. And it's like looking at the paint swatch under the wrong light. And then you paint the whole room. And then you sit in the room of your life that you've painted through this understanding you had that was off. And you go, you know, I didn't think it was really going to go here. I don't know how that got me to this. But now I'm living in this and I'm saying, wow, this isn't what I thought this was. It was the garden. That's the same play the devil's been running forever. The desire of the eye. And so... Uh, 
It's this inordinate focus that steers our life in the good news of the gospel is that Christ has saved us through his grace of being slaves to that kind of inordinate desire. We are no longer slaves to being constantly led around by um, uh, the gaze of the mind's eye, right? The faculty of knowing uh, that can be skewed by the world. So this is why desire is excited by seeing, because the eye is the gateway to the heart and to the mind. Jesus talked about the eye that way. You remember one of his most famous teachings is he says, you can't serve God in money. And when he's having this conversation about you can't serve God and serve money, he goes on, and immediately after that, immediately after it, if you go back and read it, I think it's in Matthew 6, I don't know if I wrote it down, but he, um, he starts talking about the eye. Jesus is like, you can't serve God in money, and then he talks about the eye, and if the eye is dark, then the whole life is full of darkness, and he goes into this whole thing about the eye, about how you see. Because what, what excites us is being driven by the gaze of the mind. And Jesus described the eye of a person who's loving and worshiping the wrong thing as disease or disorder. That's the way that he kind of talked about it. And so when the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and then he promises of a life of glory without suffering, this is an attempt to get Jesus to see his father differently. That's the temptation. Hey, Jesus, see your father differently. He's not good. You're suffering. He can't be good. And what is the crisis of faith that many North American Christians have when life isn't good and we experience some suffering? I mean, first world levels of suffering, okay? I'm not trying to be facetious about that. I'm just being real. And I'm always a little hesitant to talk about the kind of travel I've done because sometimes that can seem ostentatious to be like I've been to so many countries. But to just be frank and at the risk, the risk of sounding like that, I've been to so many countries, like, I think 13 or something like that, last time I added them up. And when they suffer around the world, uh, they have a different view of God in their suffering around the world than us North Americans do. Because we tend to immediately go to this place that the devil's trying to get Jesus to go, and he's like, look, you're suffering, God can't be good. But in a lot of the other places I've been in the world where they're suffering, it's, their suffering actually pushes them deeper into their greatest hope, which is Christ. They don't have anything but Jesus, so they know that all they need is Jesus, and they have great hope because of Jesus. I'll never forget preaching in South Sudan to a church that was predominantly women and children, because six months before I got there, massive, massive slaughter, husbands and sons dead in the streets horrifying. I can't even wrap my mind around it. When I talk about it, it sounds like I'm not even talking about something real. And I ask them, where are the men and the, and the sons? Is it, they don't like coming to church, or is it hard for them to embrace Christianity here? They looked at me, they said, they're dead. And as I was preaching on the hope of Christ and our suffering, these ladies started screaming and cheering and crying and dancing, and they're like, it was, it was very un-Presbyterian. They were just like, yeah! Because the idea that this life isn't all there is yanked them out of the suffering of the moment. But when we suffer from the desire of the eye, when we suffer from this inordinate driving thing that pulls us out of the transcendent worship of God, and we really don't know what's happening, and we're worshiping, and our hearts are really turned to trust in other things, um, it's a frustrating and, and anxious place to be. And so, Jesus, of course, overcomes this because he sees his Father perfectly. He sees the wisdom perfectly, even in his suffering. 
And may God continue to do that because we don't do that. We do that inconsistently. There's times in our lives where we're going through a really hard time and we turn to God right away and we're like, oh God, help me. We all do that. And those are glorious times. But then there's other times where we're going through it and we're like, first I'm going to try this. First I'm going to try that. You know, it's like our immediate reaction. It's like, oh, I'm anxious. Oh, there's pressure. Oh, the stress. You know, I need a glass of wine. I got to go do a round of golf. I got to go to the mall and buy something new. I got to go online and check Facebook. I got to do this. I got to do that. I mean, pick your poison. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm not trying to single any of you out. I've done a thousand things and so have you. We just immediately, our heart immediately turns to it. And then after those things kind of get old and we get to the end of it, we're like, okay, well now we're going to turn to God now. And you and I don't have any relationship in our life where anybody would keep taking us back like that. But the glory of God's grace is he keeps taking us back. You don't have a friend that if you just continually abandon your friend, you know, they text you, oh, I really need you right now. He just, yeah, maybe I'll tell you. But none of us would just continually keep going back and back and back and back and receiving those miserable, unfaithful friends. We wouldn't do it. We would get to a point we'd say, I cannot allow you for my own emotional health to keep hitting me in the face with an emotional hammer. This friendship is over. All of us would do that. But God in his great grace, even though we suffer from this ridiculous epithemia of the alfalfas, right? Why, why we're suffering from this constant chronica, how we're seeing and being driven and God just, and then we fall all over ourselves and then we come to church and we're like, oh God, I did it again. And he's like, my child. Welcome home. Every time. That is amazing. It's amazing. Jesus saw the wisdom of his father perfectly, and we see it inconsistently. Jesus trusted perfectly, and we trust him perfectly. You know, if I was standing with a professional photographer looking at an object, and you gave us both a camera, and we took a picture of it, the photo that I took would be entirely forgettable, and their photo would be a masterpiece. Why? We're looking at the same thing. Yeah, but there's a little saying in the professional world of photography, and this is what they say. It isn't what you're looking at. It's how you see it. And I would look at it and I'd take a picture of what I kind of thought was in. But that professional photographer would have a whole other way of looking at it. And then their photo, their photo would be infinitely greater. And that is the infinite wisdom of God. And that is the infinite, infinite wisdom of Jesus in the midst of this temptation where the devil's like, you know what, you can evade all the suffering. All you got to do is bow down. And Jesus sees it with perfect clarity, like, like, like that master photographer. It's like, I see this thing perfectly. I see this thing clearly. I see the goodness of God in all of my suffering right now. I see the goodness of God in what I'm about to suffer. And you know what? I see that at the end of all the suffering, there's going to be like a joy and a glory like you can't imagine. This is temporal. I have a... I, I, I have a Perfect clarity on what's going on right now. So the answer is, no. Worship God and him alone shall you serve. Why? Because he's better than you think. And he's wiser than you think. And he's more generous and gracious and loving than you think. Even in the midst of what we can't conceive to possibly be turned for the good of our salvation. That is the truth. And so Jesus does it. The undercurrent that's directing the various temptations that drive us to hurt others, use others, fail to love others, isolate ourselves from others, judge others, it's all in the way the eye distorts how we see others. And so instead of seeing people to connect with and love for their benefit, we see them as objects to be used or consumed for our benefit. And that's the difference between us and Jesus. And that's why this, that's why this sermon isn't about to take a turn as I close and be like, okay, so P.S., 
you know, be Jesus. But I will say this without apology. We are united to Jesus, and that has implications. None of us are going to, none of us are going to walk through temptation with the perfection of Christ. And yet, though, there is a hope of the grace of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, because, specifically because we are united to Christ. It is doing something active. You see, our righteousness before God is passive because Christ has done it all. But yet, our passive position before God is doing something very active, that is producing something very active for our neighbor. So we're given worship and meditation and prayer and and the scriptures because as we enjoy those things, they produce something very active that's very hopeful. And this is the good news. So I'm going to close with this. What does God's grace say about our past failure and temptation? And what does it offer you and I in future temptation? Well, it's good news. Jesus Christ overcame temptation perfectly for you. And then he gives that perfect record of trust and obedience to you. And through his sacrifice, he has ensured that God accepts you. And so despite your failure, he has justified you. And so now, by that same grace that saved you, he is sanctifying you. He is united to you. He is recalibrating how you see through his word through the gift of prayer through meditation he is recalibrating how you see he is renewing what you love he is reforming how you live this is the good news the implications of the good news of the gospel of jesus I'm going to close with a final picture of this to give you a sense of how it is. How is it that he does that? Just through gathering on Sundays and singing and, and, and listening to the scriptures and, and going home and, and praying with our family. I mean, how is it that through that alone God can do this reform? I'm going to give you this final picture. When I was in art class, we used to do still life drawings and you would draw an object. And, you, and then after you would draw the object, the teacher would say, okay. I want you to draw it from a different perspective. So instinctively, the whole class would get up and switch chairs. Because you had to. If you're sitting in a chair looking at an object, you say, okay, draw this from another perspective. You can't just start again from where you're sitting. Because you're going to have precisely the same perspective. The only conceivable option of seeing something with a different perspective is to get up and move from where you're seated. Justification by grace is the one-time act of God that rescues you, picks you up, puts you in another seat. And sanctification now, for those of you united to Christ and we're sitting in another seat that we were sitting in before, we don't look at life and world and worship like we looked at it before. We don't suffer from the desire of the eye like we suffered before. We've been justified by grace and put in another seat. Sanctification by grace is not a one-time act. It is an ongoing work. Reforming how you see from the new seat. How you relate to your new life in him from your new seat. Reforming and recalibrating what you love and how you think. So that you and I will bend our knee to the wisdom of the Father. Even if the wisdom of the Father contradicts what we think. We will bend our knee because we see 
the goodness of the Father. The Son overcame temptation because he trusted the Father's wisdom perfectly. We fall into temptation because we trust the Father inconsistently, but church, God's grace covers your failure completely, and his grace is reforming you to trust him increasingly. Let's pray.